Hey listeners, Tim Winkler here, your host of the Pair Program. We've got exciting news introducing our latest partner series, Beyond the Program. In these special episodes, we're passing the mic to some of our savvy former guests who are returning as guest hosts. Get ready for unfiltered conversations, exclusive insights, and unexpected twists as our alumni pair up with their chosen guest. Each guest host is a trailblazing expert in a unique technical field. Think data, product management, and engineering, all with a keen focus on startups and career growth. Look out for these bonus episodes dropping every other week, bridging the gaps between our traditional pair program episodes. So buckle up and get ready to venture beyond the program. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. And welcome to Frontiers, exploring the world of data. Frontiers dives into how people are using their data science minds to shape organizations and change the landscape outside of big tech. In each episode, we explore the far-reaching corners of the world of data. My name is Jasmine, and I'm your host for this series. I myself am passionate about empowering people to make data-driven decisions, and I'm always amazed at how others do it every day. Today, we are exploring the land of limited resources, how to enable data-driven changes when you have limited resources at your disposal. And that leads us to introducing our guest for today, Emma Gibson. I am fortunate enough to personally know Emma. I first met her when we studied operations research at MIT. I punched out after two years with my master's, but she pushed through and persevered (laughs) to get her PhD. She is a brilliant mind and has focused on working in data, analytics, and technology projects in resource-limited settings, not just in the U.S., but around the globe. She's currently an engagement lead at Business Science Corporation in the U.K., where she has quite a breadth of responsibilities, um, as we all know, and especially her official job titles only go so far. But we'll cover more of her background as we go along. So with that, I want to say thank you so much for being here today, Emma. It is such a pleasure, and I am so excited for our discussion. Lovely to be here. Thank you. All right. So I wanted to start off with an icebreaker question that is like tangentially related, arguably related to our topic of discussion when we talk about limited resource environments. So the question is, if you found yourself in a situation where you had limited resources at your disposal, or you just had limited resource environment, say, um, hypothetically, a zombie apocalypse, what are five things that would be in your grab bag, or your to go bag? Um, I guess I'll go, I'll just put mine out there first, I would have a bat for self defense, because you never know, you need some, you know, have something hard, spam for food, obviously, water, uh, because I think that's just a given, I would also have rope, because I feel like rope's one of those things where like you don't really think you need it until you need it. So rope, uh, I don't know what I need it for, but I'm sure when I need it, it'll be really handy. And then uh, Google Translate, be <laughs> the last thing. So that's like my phone and my solar power charger. I'm going to include that as one item because you can put a solar power charger like on the case of a phone. So yeah, I think it'd be really valuable to be able to translate to different languages in that sort of situation. So those are five of the things I would have. Okay. Well, uh, uh, I'm glad we've, we've dealt with the counting multiple items as one issue. Um, <laughs> okay. Because I think my starting point is a first aid kit, which is arguably probably unfairly broad. Um, but yeah, I, I realize I, I'm, I'm quite severely deficient in my understanding of how a zombie apocalypse would work. Um, but <laughs> But one thing I've gotten very good at over the last few years is uh, intercontinental travel, um, you know, 10, 10 plus hour flights followed by several trains and or buses and or taxis to, to, to get to a destination. Um, so I, I have a pretty good go bag already, which is my plane bag that I only ever have on me when I go on an aeroplane and when I'm traveling somewhere. So, so yeah, definitely first aid kit. Um, uh, assorted uh, band-aids, uh, bandages, painkillers um, would be probably top of that list. Um, next on the list wouldn't be in the bag, but it would be with me. Would be really sturdy, comfortable, waterproof shoes, um, Ooh. and an absolute must-have. 
Um, next uh, would probably be just a, a, a really unreasonable quantity of probably very unhealthy snacks. Um, <laughs> okay, this is a lot of items. Okay, okay, categories. All right, here we are. I understand categories. categories. Um, but snacks, I agree. Snacks. Um, I'm kind of assuming in a zombie apocalypse, probably we lose Google. Um, so I was thinking <laughs> like offline maps, which is a thing in airports, right? When you haven't got your SIM card sorted out and your phone's not working and you can't get onto the Wi-Fi. So like some kind of offline maps, uh, uh, a way to navigate myself. I don't actually have like an atlas or a map book or anything, but I, I would have to find one. Um, my last item, yeah, probably a water bottle. Um, always a good idea. Probably shouldn't be an afterthought either, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was like the last thing in your list. <laughs> Shows you my priorities. <laughs> well, that's very like well thought out. Like your, I guess all your travels have really prepped you for this <laughs> scenario. Where no self-defense. It's all just like pure survival. So I'm assuming you're going to just avoid the really populated areas and just try to like go into a safe haven somewhere. Yeah, I am. I I am very clumsy, hence the need for very sturdy shoes. And uh, yeah, I don't think I'm winning any sort of self defense battles. But you know, maybe if I have a first aid kit, I can like pair up with someone who can do the, the <laughs> and I can just do the like trying to keep them alive bit. <laughs> All right, we'll pair up. We'll pair up because we don't have we much overlap in our items. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for entertaining that uh, that question. So I want to uh, move to the topic of discussion today. This is a good warm-up uh, into just a very relevant warm-up. Uh, so we're here to talk about how you lean on and leverage your inner data scientist to drive change in resource-limited settings. So you have worked in these sorts of environments for a number of years now, and I was wondering if you could first define what you know, resource limited settings is like. What does it mean to you? Like, what is those? What do those environments look like for you? And then, speak a little bit about how you got into this arena in the first place. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I mean, resource limited is a a very broad and general term um, that that for me means something fairly specific, um, and and that's sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I'm from South Africa, um, so it's 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 the place I grew up, um, and it's it's really a, a place full of possibilities, but also a lot of needs that aren't being met. Um, and I think you know there's a lot of commonality across most developing countries. You know, you'll see similar sorts of healthcare challenges um, that need to be addressed there that are not the same as as what you would find in 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 the US or, or Europe or or sort of really well developed healthcare systems. Um, so, so I think really the 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 key there is it's you know it's a it's a place where there's both a lot going wrong in terms of needs not being met, but also a lot of development. Things are growing. Um, really, the the types of problems I I like to solve are the ones where you create something new that wasn't there before. Um, so, so you're not just sort of optimizing, rearranging, moving things around a little bit, um, you're, you're really meeting a need that, that couldn't be met before. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, I think in hindsight, uh, it, 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 it sort of comes out as a nice story as to how I ended up doing this. But, you know, when I think about what got me here eventually, I think, um, you know, growing up in South Africa, um, there was, you know, the, the first democratic elections, um, in my lifetime, okay, I don't, I don't remember it. I was a bit small at that point, but you know, there was a, a sense of of massive inequalities and massive needs that need to be addressed, but also change that that was happening. Um, there was also, you know, a, a great awareness of the fact that you know, I I went to a good school, I got a good education. Um, that there's a lot of people who just don't have that. Um, and and a frustration that why don't they have that? Um, you know now, decades and and decades of racial segregation and and unfair social systems. You don't undo those in in ten years or even in one generation. You know that's something society is going to be grappling with for a long time to come. Um, but but the idea that we need to do something um, about that was was really key. And I th I think the last thing was the 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 HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, you know, when when that hit and hit so hard, 
um, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, it's kind of scary as a kid. It was, it was sort of a little bit like living through COVID um, or, or what I imagine it was like to live through COVID if, if you were, you know, a, a young kid and didn't really understand any of this and you were sort of just hearing that a lot of people were dying and worried that this was going to be your friends and your family. Um, and so I think there's, there's sort of a, a catharsis there in being an adult and being able to look at these problems from a more sort of holistic kind of systemic perspective and, and think, you know, I'm not a doctor, but what can I do? What can I contribute to that? Um, yeah. So it's a very, very, very challenging, also very exciting space to be. Yeah. You, so it seems to like you're really, as you're growing up and you've been around these sorts of issues and you've seen what's going on in the world and you have that perspective, that's really what seemed to inspire you to go into these areas. I'm curious if that changed, did that change at all as you grew up, as you got older, or has it your motivation for being in this field kind of stayed the same um, throughout your life? I mean, I, yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't claim that I, I had a dream and then I made it happen. It's, <laughs> it's all constantly evolving. Um, you know, these are, these are all uh, little pieces that we, that we pull together into a story we tell ourselves that gives our life meaning. Um, but I, I think those are the main pieces. And most certainly, um, it's, it's evolving. You know, I think when I, when I started off, I, I studied applied maths and statistics. Um, so, you know, I wanted, to, I wanted to build the models. And I wanted to test the models. Um, and that, that's really great. And I still really like that. Um, but, you know, I found myself over the years slipping more and more into get the data. Um, there's lots of people who can build models. But um, in the places in the world where we need these models the most, there's no data. Um, and, and a lot of people sort of stop there. And that's completely reasonable. If you're a data scientist and there's no data, get out. What are you doing? Um, but, but, you know, I found a lot of satisfaction in that. It's taken me way out of my comfort zone. Um, you know, I, I didn't see myself building apps to, to collect data, but, but here I am. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a new perspective that you can solve the problem at many levels and many people have to contribute to solving these problems. And I've, I've sort of found a niche where I feel like, um, you know, the, there's, there's not enough people looking there. There's a lot of potential if we can if we can get the data, um, but getting it is a is a big step, and and that's my current challenge. But I hope it will continue to evolve. Um, you know, learning learning new things, trying new things is uh, is always a good way to go about it. Yeah, the whole the it seems like the constant. You know, where's the data? Can we get the data? Is there enough data? Like, do we have data? That seems to be a question that a lot of di data scientists end up you know, asking themselves at one point in a project, uh, hopefully earlier than, than not. Uh, but when it comes to your, uh, your current work, can you speak a little bit to, you know, what are, what are you currently working on or some of the projects that are most like projects or topics that have been most exciting for you in your journey so far? Yeah. I mean, uh, always happy to, to talk about what I'm, what I'm working on at the moment. Um, it, it's it's been a really phenomenal opportunity of a, a whole lot of things coming together at at the right time. So, uh, in in sort of summary, we're we're trying to build um, electronic medical record systems for the third largest hospital in the world. Um, this is a hospital that happens to be um, you know in 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 South Africa, quite quite near to where I grew up. Um, Despite being the third largest hospital in the world, it is nowhere on the list of the best resourced hospitals in the world. Um, but you know this 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 hospital called Krishani Baragwanath um, Academic Hospital. It's it's an absolutely phenomenal place. Um, it's you know it it offers sort of the, the the highest level of care that you can get in a South African healthcare facility, which means they get all the most complicated, uh, rare, tricky cases. Um, it it's it, you know, it's got far too little equipment, far too few staff, far too little funding for, for the, the magnitude of the need that it serves. Not only, you know, people in South Africa, but people travel from other countries in Africa to get the kind of healthcare there that's just not available to them otherwise. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a scenario where everyone's doing the best with what they can, what they, what they have. And so 
you know, data and, and, and digitizing information is just not a priority um, when you're trying to first save lives. Um, and, and that is a huge loss because of the scope of the work that they do, the, the complexity, the rarity of the cases that they handle, um, and just in general, the, the, the massive lack of data in the healthcare space on African populations. Um, you know, the, the potential there, um, if that data can be used and harnessed for good, is massive. Um, and the hospital itself is, is staffed with, it's an academic hospital. So it's not only where doctors are taught, but it's where doctors will do research. You know, it's, it's where the, the great minds are, are sort of gathered. Um, so there's just, there's just massive potential in terms of the good that can be done, um, not just in terms of patient care and making sure that the right information is available when it's needed and the tests aren't repeated because the results were printed and misplaced and so on. Um, but, you know, setting standards for what we want healthcare to look like in an African context and, and how to do it better. Um, so, so into this whole um, sort of perfect storm came um, a guy called Robbie Rosen, who's the, the founder of, of Nando's. I, don't, I know it's not that popular in the, in the US, but certainly in South Africa and the UK, Nando's is a, a very well-known name, but um, he's a really inspiring guy who's been involved in a lot of philanthropy in the healthcare space um, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And he sort of galvanized this, this coalition um, the organization I work with is part of it, um, the University of the Vedratisrand, which is the, the, the major medical school um, associated with the hospital is part of it, um, sort of coming together and saying, let's, let's tackle this. Let's, let's try and do digitization of data at Krasani Baragwanath Academic Hospital. Um, yeah, and so, you know, we started off in the pediatric surgery department, which is a, a, a little but very significant chunk. Um, and, and we're growing from there. Um, we're sort of working day to day, like in depth with clinicians, really understanding their needs, um, trying to co-design with them a solution that can actually work in the very difficult context that they sort of exist in day to day. Um, and that, you know, can, can ultimately not only make things better for patients, make, make patient care better, but also give them the, the ability to do the kind of research they need to improve things in the long run. Yeah, when you were first talking about, you know, third largest, I was like, the fact that it's so under-resourced, uh, I, was, I was just astounded. It just seems like such a big, uh, big challenge. You know, like the, the whole, the entirety of what you're trying to tackle is huge. Uh, what are, I'm, I'm curious because of the arena that you're in, it's just, it's a very unique arena. I was wondering, what are the, what is it about this, these problems i mean you talk about obviously like resource limited um but can you speak more about like what resources are limited can you speak more detail on on what it is about your environment that you're in that just makes it so unique from like other hospitals other than you know the the scale and magnitude and um the general lack of resources yeah i mean i i think it's you know it's it's this unique combination of of extreme need um, and, and extreme potential. Um, it's it's a, a situation where, you know, simply just scaling up healthcare requires a lot of re resources. It requires a lot of money. It requires a lot of doctors. These things are hard to come by. They don't, you know, they don't appear out of thin air and in developing countries in particular, it's, it's, it's extremely difficult. But, um, you know, to, to, to give you some examples, um, you know, the, this hospital consists of over 400 different buildings. Um, and, you know, and, and it's, it's sort of, it's sprung up uh, as a campus more than a hospital. You know, bits have been added on. And at any given point in time, a large number of these buildings will be undergoing some kind of uh, renovation or improvement. Um, but, but, you know, the, the doctors are, are, are wheeling patients in beds between the buildings and holding an umbrella over the bed when they have to walk through an area that's uncovered, just because if there's money to be invested, you know, um, investing it in fixing the essential equipment that's keeping patients alive is more important than, than you know, fixing other things that are sort of nice to have. Um, in terms of staffing, you know, the, the hours that these doctors work, uh, the patients that they see, the, the, the load of work that they have is you know, sort of unprecedented. Um, and it's, it's really a place where, you know, 
it attracts people who are willing to go that extra mile. The circumstances are so difficult that the people who are there, um, you know, have to make a very clear decision about their attitude to it, that they have to see the opportunities, they have to be willing um, to to sort of give it their everything. Um, and so, you know, I think it's um, it's just, it's really great to see what that brings out in people um, that, you know, these these adopters who are, are, are doing, you know, maybe 15, 20 surgeries in a day, potentially, and they're going home and they're filling out the paperwork and they're capturing the data in bed with a cup of tea because they don't have administrative staff. They don't have computers in the hospital to capture this data while they work. Um, so just the, the scope of it is, is quite overwhelming. Um, but the, the potential that you can see there, you know, if we just had this, if we just changed a few things, the opportunities that that opens is, is mind-blowing. Yeah, and when you're when you're talking about the the opportunities and the potential, I'm curious how your background and the the uh, the data minded person that you are, how does that play into your current role and how you shape or mold or move your organization in a in a particular direction? Yeah, so I think you know when when you're when you're talking about collecting data in, in these kinds of settings, you, you've got to do it with a purpose, right? Nobody has time to, let's just capture everything. And maybe in 10 years time, some, you know, PhD student will come and, and, and write a paper on it. Um, like if, if it's not useful, it doesn't get done. They, they do not have the bandwidth um, to, to, to do things that are, that are just maybe nice to have. So I think coming in um, with a, an operations research mindset is hugely valuable. If you look at data information and you're immediately thinking, what problems could this solve? What questions could this answer? What are the pitfalls? What are the concerns? What are the assumptions that we're going to have to make? Getting that baked into the data collection process, being able to sort of see that through from start to finish is incredibly valuable, making sure that with, with the, the, the very limited um, you know, resources that you've got, you're targeting them appropriately just in terms of your data collection. Um, so I think, I think that's been really huge. And, and there's also a, you know, just a, a problem solving element to it. Um, you know, knowing, knowing the right questions to ask, knowing, knowing how to interrogate a problem um, to sort of extract the key elements, not, not accepting that will never work. Why will it never work? What do we need to change? What, what assumptions do we need to challenge there? I think you know the, those are those are all skills that you absolutely learn when you when you do mathematical modeling when you do data science that that you can apply in this context to 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 great benefit. Yeah, so there's this mix of not just hard skills but also these soft skills that um, are hugely valuable. I imagine in environments that you're working in, there is you know a lot there could there could be a lot of tension. There could be a lot of uh, passionate, passionate conversations that happen. You know, people are very dedicated to what their work, to their, to their field. And um, when we talk about the the skills that are useful, I'm curious if there's, like, are there a mix of soft skills or certain uh, types of skills that you were able to maybe you learned a little bit of or you knew of when you were, you know, uh, studying or before you got into this role, but you're now that you're. Um, working day to day at the hospital or working in this environment um, with with these sorts of um, individuals, are there certain skills that you really had to hone in on and really um, improve since you've um, started working in this arena? Yeah, so so I think um, you know learning learning that it's okay to feel like an idiot sometimes which happens a lot of the time when you're hanging around with doctors and you, you know, you understand maybe one in two words that they say. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's overwhelming sometimes how much time these people have spent studying and the amount of knowledge that is contained in their head that they just, you know, they can just call it up at a minute's notice. So going, going from a, a sort of academic environment or, or a, a, a sort of, coding environment where, you know, you, you do things at your own pace and you learn things and you read the documentation, learning how to sort of slot in to a completely unfamiliar context and, and be comfortable with that, be, be sort of comfortable with what you don't know and, and know, you know, the, the right questions to ask, the right people to talk to, and the way to 
sort of grapple enough with their context to turn it into something that you can reasonably engage with. Um, and I, I think that's always stood out to me as, as finding the right people. Um, you know, people, people have different skills in, in every team. Um, you know, the, there's going to be the mommy of the team who, who likes to sort other people out and make sure that everyone's taken care of and everyone's keeping up. And there's going to be the leader who's got new ideas and wants to do bold things and, and so on. Um, and so, you know, finding, finding how to identify those people um, with, within teams, um, getting, getting to the people that you, you really know will engage with a problem, will help you get to the heart of it, um, will give you uh, the kind of sort of thoughtful feedback um, that you need is, a, is an incredibly, incredibly valuable skill. Um, and, you know, sort of based on anecdotal experience, uh, a, a really good approach that I found is to, you know, ask, ask whoever's managing the team, who's the person that complains the most? <laughs> um, you know, who's the troublemaker? Um, who's the person who keeps trying to shake things up and change them? Um, because often, you know, these are the people with 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 both the ideas um, and and also the passion to put into it, who are sort of strongly motivated to 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 improve where things could be improved. Um, so I think I think that's you know that's that's an ongoing process. Uh, each time you work with a new team, you learn something new from them. You meet new people, and they teach you things. Um, uh, about their context and also uh, about how, how, how you can do a better job of really understanding problems that are completely un unfamiliar to you when you start. I almost feel like there's like a, it's a, it's a different, there, there are different like levels of how much an individual will use their like user empathy skills. <laughs> and I feel like in your situations, because it's uh, you're working in such complex environments, there's so many stakeholders, there's so many people involved. Uh, you have to exercise a lot of patience, but you also are constantly putting yourself in other folks' shoes, um, seeing you know what is their perspective, trying to understand it from their perspective. Because I think as data scientists or people that are very much you know think of data when you're in 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 these industries that are not as data or technology native you find that you're the the outsider coming in of sorts um people are not always the most uh the most welcoming of you there are some people that are skeptical of what impact you can provide so i imagine you've you've had quite a few of those sorts of experiences where you have to kind of win people over in a sense or really get them to um, see your way of things but there's also this you know you have to sit back as well and take some time to understand it from their point of view. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've summarized it really well. I think I, I'm always, you know, in, in awe of, of the work that these doctors do. And I feel the pressure as well. You know, when we have a, a session where we need to sit down with them, we need to get feedback, find out what's working, what's not working. Um, they've got a theater list, you know, they've got 10 patients, 10 kids who they need to operate on that day who are waiting. If our discussion runs half hour over, um, there are patients whose surgeries might be delayed. There are patients whose surgeries might need to be canceled. If they, you know, if there's a, a bug or a problem and they have to spend 15 minutes talking to me on the phone, um, that's 15 minutes less sleep they're getting or 15 minutes less that they're spending with a patient. Um, and that, that really puts things in perspective. Like if I think my job is stressful, <laughs> that, that is another level entirely. So, you know, so, so, so especially in the medical setting where you're dealing with people whose decisions save lives, um, it's, you know, it, you, you have to be so aware of that. And I, I think the trust is a big thing. Um, you know, as, as a doctor, when, when you've got so much responsibility on your shoulders, allowing someone else to sort of come in and try and change the way you do things, try and change the way you work, especially someone who is not a medical doctor. Um, you know, letting them in in that way is a, is a big ask. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the whole approach that we've tried to take with this project is really to honor the clinician's workflows. So to go into their context and get a detailed understanding of what they need and build something that is specifically tailored to that rather than um, you know, doing a lot of research on international best practices in healthcare data systems and then building a system and showing them how to use it. Um, and so, you know, when I started this project, my sort of baptism by fire was 
I, I joined them at 5.30 a.m. before their morning rounds. Um, they put me in a set of scrubs and they took me to every location that they work in this massive hospital of how many hundred buildings. Um, and I think my Fitbit was really happy that day. I got in far more <laughs> than I would do on any normal day. Um, but, you know, the being so being so close to it, being let in in that way was phenomenal. I don't think I could have gotten an understanding of of you know the the complexity of their work any other way um and and also the just the the reality of it that every minute of the day um you know there's really sick kids who who these doctors are trying to help and every every decision that they make every every event that occurs throughout the day has the potential to contribute to that in one way or another um so you know i i've learned from that experience that i'm really glad i didn't go into medicine um you know i i didn't i didn't faint at the sight of blood or anything um but i I, yeah, I'm in awe of the the emotional stamina that it takes to do that day in day out, and also of the fact that there are all of these doctors who work under such challenging circumstances, and then go home at the end of the day and think about how to make it better, and you know, in, invest more energy in thinking about the bigger picture, which is it's you know just such a phenomenal thing to see in that context. Yeah, it's a completely different environment than if you're just surrounded by a bunch of fellow researchers and you're in a lab. And you're, you know, working on a project. The fact that you have to interact with so many other people uh, allows for a lot of new, cool experiences uh, and really impactful experiences, and can really shape how you personally see the world um, for the better. I'm wondering now, when it comes to you know these environments, these resource limited environments that you find yourself in, are there Good, like positives. I know there's a lot of challenges, and obviously we talked about how impactful it is and how much you can get personally from it. But in terms of actually working on the project and the technology aspect of it, are there uh, things that are maybe easier or things that are surprise that were surprising to you when it comes to try to implementing some of these solutions or proposed solutions in these environments? I mean, the, the, the biggest and most obvious one is that there's such huge potential for impact um, that getting, you know, the, the scope of the improvement that's needed is huge and getting that improvement can, can change so many things. Um, so, so that's a huge draw, obviously. Um, there's also, you know, there's, there's, there's the fact that it's a, a very sort of developing dynamic environment. Um, so I think although you're severely constrained in the resources that you have, and, and, and that can be a huge barrier sometimes, you also have a lot less inertia um, in terms of uh, legacy systems and you know, the way we've always done things. And I think this is a, this is a trend that, that I've seen in, in you know, my, my time living in, in various different places in the world that I was quite shocked when I got to the US in 2016 um, and realized that people were still sending checks in the mail. Um, because I remember that South Africa phased out checks when I was a kid. Um, like it, it was just seen as a, a really weird and inefficient way to do things. Like you just log into your online banking and you just type in the account details and then you send them the money. Um, but you know, when I got to the U S in 2016, there was no option to pay my rent that way. Um, it was, you know, you can write a check and you can, you can send it in the mail. So, you know, um, that's one example of being sort of a, a late adopter um, that, you know, if, if you're doing something um, that other places have, have already done in many different ways, you learn from that experience, right? You, you, you get to take advantage of sort of new and exciting things um, without having to, to deal with all of the inertia that, that, that comes with the, the sort of older uh, or sort of first attempts at these systems. Um, and I think that, you know, that's huge in terms of mobile technologies. Um, in 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 sub-Saharan Africa, particularly, um, you know, we we spent a lot of time working with doctors uh, at at Barra Pediatric Surgery, trying to decide what kind of you know user interface we were going to build for this system, um, and and we we tried to go in with you know absolutely no preconceived ideas about what this should be, and the conclusion we came to is it's it's got to be an app. Um, they're you know they're constantly wo- walking from building to building. We can't put computers in all of these buildings. Um, you know who's who's gonna who's gonna maintain them? And and the doctors are constantly on their phones. Um, you know this is this is how they they stay in contact. If something goes wrong, um, you know they have to have their phone with them. So, you know I think that that would be probably quite a 
quite a big ask if you went to a major hospital in the US and said, you know what, from now on, we're going to do all our data stuff with phones. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but, but, but it was just sort of the, the, the logical step um, in this context. And, and so I think, you know, mobile technology in general um, is, is so accessible, so ubiquitous. Um, and, and there's really, really exciting opportunities there. And, and we're sort of, we're getting straight to that um, in, in the work I've been doing, which, you know, again, didn't see myself as a mobile dev, um, but <laughs> it, it's really exciting to be working with a team who's doing that and, and seeing, hey, you know, we can make an app and it's a really useful app. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, with, with the challenges, there, there are these silver linings that make it a really exciting place to be. Yeah, just to be able to jump in and kind of think mobile first, think of what's the most lightweight way that you can. I think that also bleeds into this like thought of being agile in a sense and in being, you know, just showing, you know, what is the minimum viable product that we can provide to you? What would be, you know, the that would provide the most value with the least amount of um, investment just to get something to you faster? The the thought of of folks just signing up for mobile applications in in the hospitals here in the U.S. This is like oh you know it seems like there'd be a lot of uh, a lot of need to convince them of the need for that. But with the work that you're doing, you're able to you know there is no precedence uh, and you can define what that first step looks like and that. That's really exciting, but there's also a lot of responsibility there, um, which I'm I'm sure you feel <laughs> you feel every day. <laughs> yeah. Looking at this, the if looking at the the future of this field, I'm wondering what your thoughts are regarding um, people that are working in this similar environments as you. What? Do you, do you see that the, your area of work growing? You see more people getting involved? Do you see a lot more momentum and funding in, in, in these areas? Um, or are you seeing the opposite? What, what, what do you think is the um, future trajectory of this area of work? I, I, you know, I, I, I definitely think it's going to grow. Um, I think COVID galvanized a, a, a lot of that, um, you know, COVID forced a lot of people to, to do things virtually um, that they wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and I think that will, you know, that will take some time to sort of sink in at a much deeper level, at a policy level, at a planning level. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of unavoidable that once you've taken those first steps into, into doing things digitally, you don't go back. Um, you know, you you once you have the convenience of of being able to, you know, video call or do WhatsApp or, or whatever it is, um, you know, whatever whatever tool was available to you in the moment, um, it, it's very hard to think, um, you know, actually we should do all of this in person um, and we should print out all of these things um, and so on. So so I think it's you know the the seeds are there, um, and I, I think doing it right is is the bigger question are we gonna are we gonna do it properly are we gonna do it sustainably because we're gonna do it it's it's happening it's inevitable um but but making sure that 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 we're doing it in a way that sort of sets us up for future success um and and minimizes you know future risks and problems is is the key um and i, I think you know there there is definitely um a, a lot of a lot of movement in this in this space um you know there's there's a whole lot of new um sort of medical technologies that 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 are becoming accessible and with those there's a greater interest in research and in data um, and so it's sort of coming from all sides there's patients want access to their data um and you know and then there's there's the the people developing the blood tests or the new cancer treatment who really need that data to to be able to do their research so i think pulling all of these things together in the right way um is really key and 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 there are there are definitely conflicts. Um, you know, the, the, the simplest one is really um, making sure that everything you do is good for the patient, um, that, you know, someone's, someone's health care and someone's data should never, should never be used in a way that doesn't benefit them, um, and, and making sure that, that all of those decisions uh, are, are sort of firmly grounded in that principle. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I, I definitely think um, we, we're not going back. 
um, we're, 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 we're only going forward. Um, and, and I think as, as time goes on, there are going to be a lot more people sort of asking good questions about are we going forward in the right way? What, what is the best way to go forward? And I'm really, really happy to be there to, to, to hear that. Yeah, the, you know, the, the momentum that this already has, I can see it already continuing. I mean, people are obviously becoming more and more digitally savvy. People are growing up already in this digital age and they are expecting these tools to already be available. And with that expectation just comes the products and the delivery of these sorts of tools and capabilities to them. But like you said, the most important thing is to make sure that we have the right people that are building these things and we have the right mindset, I think, especially in this field that's so sensitive and there's such a, you know, you have um, so much responsibility. It's important to have the right people building these products and creating change in these organizations. Do you have advice? I'm sure people that are listening in are very interested in like working in these sorts of fields where you don't have, you know, everything you'd like and you could possibly ask for your disposal, but you have to try to figure out how to make it work, how to figure out how to make, uh, how to make impact when you're not given much. What advice do you have for folks that are interested in these, in these fields? You know, I, I think the, the one is, is, is to be grounded in, in reality and, and, and sort of the, the, the practical reality of your, your situation and what you want to achieve. Um, you know, having having a very clear idea of why you're doing what you're doing and how it how it's valuable to you, and that that's going to be different for every individual. Um, but that helps because it is tough. You need something to get you through the tough times. Um, you know, you you are going to have to make sacrifices at some point if you if you if you want to do something that's that's really really meaningful. It's probably not going to be super easy. Um, so so I think being really grounded in that is is key, and and that's. That's about you personally. Um, you know, that's not really something that 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 you get from from someone else. Um, I think having the the right collaborators is the other key thing. Um, that really, if you want to solve complex problems where there's not a lot of information available, where there's a great need, um, you need champions of that solution who understand the context, who live in it, um, who deal with it every day. Um, so so. Anytime that um, that you know you 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 sort of find yourself making assumptions, there should be someone who checks those assumptions, and there should be someone who sort of informs the the way you move forward. And and knowing how to connect with those people and find those people um, is is hugely valuable. And you know they they make all the difference. Um, and then and then I think the you know the the other part of it is uh, treating it as a journey. Um, that there's always setbacks, um, and and you you don't start from point A and go directly towards point B with single-minded determination um, <laughs> and constant focus. Um, you know, it's okay to question things. It's okay to take detours. It's it's okay to make mistakes. Um, and you know, ultimately, that's that's how you that's how you find where you need to be. Um, being sort of open to to new opportunities that might arise, and and. And sort of ready to to rethink at the appropriate times. Yeah, when it's not a straight line, you become open to like learning new things. You like explore new frontiers. Uh, <laughs> no, that no, I love it. I love it. You everything that you said. Uh, it is the complexity and the unexpectedness of this field are what make it exciting but also it is important to know really what that means i mean you, it is a it is a profession it's a field it's a it's a field of work and it the the opportunities are um, the opportunities are real and the opportunities are can be immense but there's also a lot that comes with it that you also need to make sure that you keep an awareness of um, and yeah it's a I love the idea that it's, you know, things are not straight lines. You can, you have to go in around a route, but that's where you learn the most. And that's, um, are the most exciting journeys. So thank you for that. So as we actually near the end of this episode, I wanted to close with like a short game of sorts that I have labeled fact or fiction. So I have a few statements here about working in resource limited settings. Um, not all of them are completely irrelevant, similar to our zombie apocalypse in the beginning of the episode. 
<laughs> and I would like you to tell me if you think these statements are fact or fiction and there's no expectation at all that you should actually know the answer to any of these, the real, the truth, the ground truth of any of these. Um, I just think it's a great uh, exercise to just test your, test your, um, uh, test your skills. So with that, the first one. So many nonprofits have to work under resource limited circumstances. Despite this challenge, there are around 10 million nonprofits worldwide. Is that fact or fiction? Fact? Yes, there are. Okay, so there are around 10 million nonprofits wow. worldwide. I was surprised. I didn't think that number that's would be. Lot. Yeah. I was like, that's actually, when I saw 10, I was like, oh, that doesn't seem like a lot. But then million, I'm like, that's a lot. A lot. Fun fact: fifteen percent of them tend to be in the U.S. I think the majority are in Asia. So, just like in terms of distribution here. All right, second one. Uh, let's talk about NGOs and charities. So, healthcare was the largest segment of the NGOs and charitable organizations market, accounting for about fifty-five percent of the total market in 2020. And you can talk this out too. <laughs> yeah, I, like I'm gonna say fiction because I I don't think it's like 55 percent is a lot. <laughs> you're right. Oh my gosh, I'm surprised. I, I mean, would not have. Yeah, you're right. I expected you well. <laughs> yeah, you're two for two right now. Um, yeah. So actually, healthcare is the largest, the fastest growing segment of the the market, but. Uh, trust and foundations are actually the largest segment that they make up 55%. So think of like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is the largest one. Yeah. All right. Third one. Let's see. Rural, rural areas around the globe generally have less access to resources when compared to urban areas. Currently, the rural population globally is around 44%. Hmm. Well, I know that the first sentence was true um, in terms of rural areas having less access to resources. <laughs> uh, that statement is at least 50% true. Um, 44%, I'm going to say fiction. It is a fact. Oh, really? 44%? Yes. Oh. The rural population globally is around 44%. And it's going to continue to decrease, I think, over the years. I think that's the prediction. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Most are in rural uh, urban areas, which I was like surprised about too. I was like, wow, I didn't know that many are in like cities and whatnot. Oh, yeah. I would have thought it was the other. Like I was thinking 44% sounds too high. Um, oh, really? I was thinking there's been so much urbanization. Like, you know, does, does, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound a bit like high for forty four percent of the population to be in in areas classed as rural? That's so yeah. interesting. We can have different perspectives on this. Yeah. I'm I'm in a city, so I just feel like you know I'm just like everyone should be here, right? Everyone's sitting here. It seems like everyone's here. Um, okay, four. Uh, the nonprofit sector in the U.S. employs about eleven point nine million people, making it the country's third largest employer after retail and manufacturing. Okay. Um, I'm going to say fiction because I'm guessing maybe one of those statements is not true, <laughs> but I have no idea which one. So I'm just hedging my bets there, really. I like your I like your thought process there. <laughs> Actually, it's a fact. Oh, so wow. it is. Yeah. So the nonprofit sector is um, the third largest employer, which I was like, wow. Yeah, I was surprised about that too. That is huge. Where does the, do you know where government ranks on that list in the US? Um, I don't know. Okay. Well, I, I mean, 11, 11 point something million people is, is, is pretty big. So yeah. Cause the nonprofit also includes like the hospital, many hospitals are yeah. related as nonprofit. So it's just, yeah, it's really big in the US. It's very broad. There's like, it, it covers a lot of ground. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you're 50, 50. All right, the last one. 
fresh water is a very limited resource, as you all know. That's not the question, and that's not the t- sentence in question. That's true. Um, <laughs> that's true. Today, only 3% of fresh water is in liquid form on the surface. 3% of fresh water is in liquid form on the surface. True fact? It fact. is fiction. Okay. What, only, what is Only 0.3% of fresh water is in oh liquid goodness. form on the surface. Yeah. Yeah. So most fresh water exists in the form of ice, snow, and groundwater and soil mo- moisture. So, oh, okay. I see. Okay. Yeah. So only 0.3%. Um, I was like, wow, that's so small of like fresh water, really? Well, in, in my defense, I really try not to think about frozen things when I can. Um, <laughs> I come from a very warm climate and, and we just sort of try to pre- pretend that, that, that snow and sleet and uh, ice don't exist for most of you. Um, okay, wow, fair. We'll give you that pass. <laughs> the more you know, the more you know. So thank you, Emma, for being a worthy player. And thank you as well. Just thank you so much for being my guest. I have always admired the work you do and the dedication that you put to your craft. And I'm so grateful to be able to share your insights and thoughts with others. I mean, you are a natural explorer. (laughs) Even though you're... Even though you're like facing, you know, these challenges every day, you your impact is just so immense and you're so dedicated to helping others. And like, you're really not afraid to take these paths less, less traveled and just go right in and put in the hard work that needs to be done because you see really the, the impact of what you're doing and you see the potential that you can create. So um, I, I deeply appreciate you being here and taking your time to be with us here today. No, oh, thank you. I, I been lovely to to chat about this stuff and i i could chat about this forever and so really really great to talk with like-minded people and thank you for the opportunity i wanted to also thank hatch it for sponsoring this episode and allowing me to host these series and lastly i'd like to thank you the listener for tuning into this episode and exploring the world of data with us take care everyone Calling all startup technologists. Have you ever dreamed of hosting your own podcast, but don't know where to start? Well, here's your chance to shine. We're thrilled to introduce Beyond the Program, our exclusive mini series, and we want you to be a part of it. As tech leaders and mentors, you'll get the exclusive opportunity to become a guest host right here on the Pair Program podcast. Share your expertise, insights, and stories with our audience of startup-focused technologists. Excited? We knew you would be. To be considered, head over to myhatchpad.com backslash contribute, fill out a brief form, and submit it our way. Let's co-create something amazing together. Don't miss this chance to elevate your voice and expand your personal brand. Visit myhatchpad.com backslash contribute.